There was a, a classic Christmas song that gets a lot of radio play that people love. It's a modern classic. It was written in 1984. And it was put to music in uh, 1991. Uh, Mark Lowry is the one who wrote the words in 84 originally. The first person who ever recorded it was Michael English. Now, Mark Lowry was traveling with the Gaither Vocal Band at the time, and so was Michael English. And I imagine that's how that came together. Uh, the song has literally been sung by hundreds now. You just Google it, and I mean, everybody from the Pentonics to Kenny Rogers and all across the board. Everybody has sung this song that is deeply loved. And so as I as I share a little bit about this song, I, I, I don't want to beat it up too much. But Mary knew. I don't care how many times you ask the question, Mary, did you know? If you read your Bible, you find out that Mary knew that Jesus was the Son of God because the angel told her. Mary knew that he was a Messiah because the angel told her that he was going to fulfill prophecy. Mary knew that Jesus was going to save people from their sins, that he came to save us from our sins because not only did the angel tell her, the angels told the shepherds on the mountain and they came down and told Mary what they just heard. So though that I did a little bit of research on that song and, and basically there's 11 different questions different questions that asked, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would walk on water? But she probably didn't know that, okay? So I'm going to give them that. <laughs> she did not know that he was going to heal the blind, that the lame were going to walk. She didn't know exactly how it was going to all work out. But if you look at the questions in the song, there's 11 questions, and she knew the answer to seven of them. <laughs> so by and large, Mary knew. Now, it's still a great song, and, and I... I you know, I saw uh, reactions to that song across the board from those who said, one, of course, it had to be Baptist, you know, some goofy, some Baptist theologian wrote that it was the most sexist, misogynistic Christmas song ever written. Because he, he, he you know, he, his point was you would never ask Abraham, did you know? And, and it's like you're treating Mary, uh, you know, like she's some dumb girl. I don't believe that. I don't think it was a sexist song. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, you have folks who would say, well, it wasn't, it was just written as an essay or, or uh, as poetry. And it was, it, because it's written as poetry, you need to give it license, and it was never intended to be a theological treaty. Well, now on the other hand, that's where Matthew might step in and say, well, well wait a minute. Sometimes our theology, we learn through our worship. So let's be careful, right? So, Look, I love the sentiment of the song, and, I, and for years I would think about that, and it's such beauty in the song because Mary, as a very, very young, most of us in our modern day would refer to her as a child or a teenager, not necessarily a woman, because most scholars believe that when she was betrothed because of Jewish, uh, the context of the, of the Jewish society at that time, she was probably around 14 years old when Jesus was born. Now, it's hard for us to even imagine that. And even more so that an angel appeared to Mary in the night to deliver the good news. And of course, as angels do most of the time when they show up on the scene, they begin with the words, fear not. Well, yeah, if you're a 13 or 14-year-old young lady and all of a sudden an angel appears in the middle of the night, that's probably the first thing you need to hear is don't be afraid or fear not. One of the reasons that we know that Mary knew 
was because while she was still pregnant, in fact, seems as though pretty soon after she found out that she'd become pregnant, she had to leave town. Well, the scripture tells us she left town to go spend some time with her cousin, Elizabeth, or, or yeah, her cousin Elizabeth, who was also pregnant at the time with a miraculous uh, baby that was going to be John the Baptist. So very early in the pregnancy, she goes, and while she is there with Elizabeth, we have this beautiful song. Uh, in your Bible, if you're using the CSB today, it's in Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 55. It's entitled, at least the subtitle of mine is Mary's Song. Many throughout church history know, know of it as the Magnificat. It is uh, this incredible, uh, moving expression of Mary's faith. Then don't forget this, right in the middle of one of the most challenging, difficult times of her life. So before we read the text, let me give you a little bit more of her social context. The majority of the people are not going to believe that she's a virgin when she shows up pregnant. They know she's betrothed. In fact, Joseph initially was going to have her put away. He was going to divorce her. He had every right, according to, to Jewish law at that point, to have her stoned, but he wasn't going to do that. He was going to divorce her, and from that day forward, she was going to be disgraced. It's going to be very difficult for her to ever find uh, a legitimate husband in her culture. She was going to be disgraced uh, among her family. Uh, it was going to be, she was in this place where nobody, who, who's going to believe the fact that this girl who's married to Joseph or engaged, betrothed to Joseph at that time, was a virgin when she shows up pregnant at 14. Joseph was struggling with it, but an angel appeared to him and gave him special insight. An angel told him, hey, don't, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. The, what's conceived in her is of the Lord, it's of the Holy Spirit. You see that over in, in Matthew chapter 1. And so Joseph then goes ahead and is engaged to her, but for a time, Mary leaves town. There's no surprise. She's going to leave town. She's going to go spend time away from those who knew her. She's, she's, I can't even imagine the looks that she's getting. And even though she knows the truth, the struggle that she's having through this. And then on top of that, you still have the fact that she, even though she knows God is the one who's called her to it, God is the one who's given her uh, this child in her womb. She still has to raise him. She's not even married yet. She's going to be married soon. She's not even married yet, and she's going to have to raise this child. Joseph has joined in. He's going to be there to help her. Scripture says before she was born, he took her as his wife, but did not have relations with her until after Jesus was born. Scripture makes that very clear, so... Mary up until the birth of Christ and after the birth of Christ remained a virgin. And yet she's carried all of this weight on her. One of the most moving phrases of scripture that, that I, I still want you to hear to get this context is after the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, Mary's last words to the angel before he disappeared were, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be done to me according to your word. That's a tough thing for us to say. Can you imagine in your prayer saying, Lord, I am yours. 
let it be done to me whatever you want. That's truly an incredible thought to submit ourselves to the will of God to that extent. Because most of us, when we say that, it's kind of like when we sing the old hymn, I surrender all. What's really going on in the back of our mind is I surrender some. Mary at that point says, Lord, here I am. Let it be done to me, whatever you want. Put that in context of this young teenage girl. Read with me her song. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed, because the mighty one has done great things for me, and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arms. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. And Mary stayed with her, Elizabeth, about three months, and then she returned home. What an incredible expression of joy and faith that you hear from Mary in this song. Remember, she is still deep in the throes of, I imagine, some emotional upheaval in her life. Things have been turned upside down. And she comes to meet with Elizabeth, and if you read the paragraphs before that, Elizabeth rejoices because the baby who's in her womb that she knows is a miracle because she's gotten pregnant in her old age, that baby leaps in her womb, rejoicing, she says, as it has come into contact uh, with the spirit of the child that Mary is carrying in her womb. So Elizabeth is all excited, and in response to that, Mary simply begins with this song, my soul magnifies the Lord. As I've worked and worked over this this text and, and out, looked at this outline, the one, one of the things that caught me as I read over and over and over toward the end of my, my sermon writing process was how very personal the first few lines of this text are. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not applicable to you and I. I think they are, and we'll talk about that in a second. But the first thing that I want you to see here is how personal Mary cries out, my soul magnifies the Lord. That is the one of the few verbs, I'll get a little technical here. It's one of the few words, one of the few verbs in this entire song that is present tense. In fact, I think it's the only one that's present tense. Mary is basically saying, right now, I am celebrating, I'm rejoicing, I am magnifying. I want to proclaim and declare who he is. My soul magnifies the Lord. Most of the verbs throughout this text, in fact, all but one other, are aorist tense, which means that they're They're considered something that's settled, something that was done in the past that has present implications. Now, that's important. Most of these verbs, you see that in the English, but you don't in the next one. Sometimes people, you know, you look at me, you go, okay, why does that matter, Pastor? It matters here. Because in the next verse, he says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That is translated rejoices in our CSB, our Christian Standard Bible, 
but that is an aorist tense verb. Mary says, my spirit rejoiced in God, my Savior. Her spirit already rejoiced, and her spirit is going to continue to rejoice going forward. And I, I wonder what time period she's looking back when she says, my spirit rejoiced. My guess would be, and it, it's simply that, because we don't know. All I'm telling you is this, is, this isn't something new that showed up because uh, she came into the presence of Elizabeth with John the Baptist in her womb. That's my point. This is not new. Mary started rejoicing at the point that God blessed her and that he poured out his spirit upon her. Now, for many of us, when God put that kind of calling on our life, not many of us would call it a time for rejoicing. Maybe we're a little afraid. I'm sure Mary had some fear. Mary had some tension. She had some questions. She didn't know it all. She didn't know how all it was going to work out. But at that point, she had a confidence in God who had spoken to her because you see her say here, my spirit rejoiced, aorist tense, settled, past tense going forward. My spirit rejoiced and is still rejoicing because of what God has done, because of God, my Savior. And notice once again how deeply personal this is. My spirit rejoiced in God, my Savior. One of the lines in, in Lowry's song is, Mary, did you know that the, the baby that you hold would one day save you? The one that you're taking care of now would take care of you. Yes, she did. And she says it right here. My spirit rejoiced in God, my Savior. She knew that in Christ she had a Savior. What an incredible, overwhelming thought that God had blessed her with the privilege of carrying in her womb her own Savior. Mind-numbing to me. Man, I don't know how many times I felt like God has blessed me with an incredible opportunity or gift, and my thought was, man, I hope I just don't blow this. I hope I don't mess it up. I'm sure that Mary had some of those thoughts. He's chosen me to carry my Savior. And then you see, he, he says he looked because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servants. Surely from now on to all generations will call me blessed. That's the only other time that a verb appears here that is not past tense. It's uh, She looks forward and says, for all generations, they'll call me blessed. They'll look back on, on this special time and recognize that I have been blessed. Mary knew that she was carrying in her womb the Savior of all of mankind that was going to have an impact for generations who was also her Savior. It, can, it continues with a personal tone for one more verse. In verse 49, when she says, because the mighty one has done great things for me. The mighty one has done great things for me. Probably a 14-year-old girl with, a, in some ways, the burden of the world on her shoulders, or you might say in her womb, rejoicing that God 
has chosen her, knowing that, that the world is going to call her blessed forever. And I don't believe in any way she thinks it's because she's special. She knows that God chose her, but ultimately she's already said here, he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. She knew that she wasn't a queen. She didn't live in a palace. She was engaged or betrothed to a carpenter. But God looked on her humble condition and poured out his blessings upon her. And she ends that very personal section there in verse 49 with this declaration. And his name is holy. He is holy. He is, he is something other than us. Holy means to be set apart. He, he's different than us. He's pure. He is holy. I don't believe in the, clearly in the, in the doctrine of the, the Catholic Church that perpetual virginity that, that Mary was some sort of a sinless person when she uh, carried Christ in her womb. Christ was sinless because his heavenly father, the spirit of God who placed Christ in her womb was without sin, not because Mary was without sin. Mary recognizes that God is holy. He, he's, he's not like me. He's perfect. Now put all of that together and, and th this section right here would be enough for the sermon today. Because everything that Mary communicates about her understanding about God here is applicable to us. First of all, she finds in her conception, in, in, in the coming birth of the Savior, she finds in Jesus reason to rejoice. And that's why we're here today. We have reason to rejoice because Jesus was born of a virgin. And she finds in that reason for her soul to magnify the Lord. This ought to be a time of year where we celebrate and we rejoice and we magnify and we glorify and we, we shout out from the mountaintops that Jesus is God, that he is Lord. Her soul magnifies the Lord. And, and just as she had reason to rejoice in her immaculate conception, so also ought we have reason to rejoice in that. She had reason to rejoice because, she says, my spirit rejoices because God is my Savior in Christ. She was going to have a Savior. Now, as you parse this down, she says, God is my Savior, not the baby in my womb. But she understood that God the Father had placed the Savior inside of her womb. And within a few months, she would be holding that Savior, that Christ child in her very arms. There's reason to rejoice for us because Jesus is our Savior. We, we tend to put too much distance between the, the, the manger and the cross and the resurrection. Jesus was born for that very purpose, to go to the cross so that we might have an opportunity to be saved and it, 
that he might be resurrected to give us new life. Jesus is our Savior. We have reason to rejoice because he is our Savior. We have reason to rejoice because regardless of where you are in, in the social strata of our world, whether you're living in a slum or you're homeless or you're living in a mansion, it does not matter. Christ came for you. And Mary, Mary magnifies that when she says, he looked on me with favor. He looked on my humble condition, the humble condition of this servant. When you look down at the, the next major point that you see in this text, when Mary steps aside a little bit or, or steps out beyond the personal application, you see her expound on this idea. She said, he has done a mighty deed with his arm. You know what? A legalist might sit down and say, well, he hadn't done anything yet. Jesus hadn't been born. Jesus hadn't gone to the cross. Jesus hadn't died. But Mary's view is that once God chose to come into this world and the, the Son of God was placed in her womb, he, God, who keeps his promises, has already accomplished it. So everything from here on out, all of these verbs are past tense. God has done a mighty deed with his arm. What are these mighty deeds that he has done? Scripture goes on to say there, he has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and, the, and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant, remembering his mercy. Let me boil that down to you in a couple things. We have a God who looks with compassion on the hearts of the humble. And anyone who would come to him with a humble heart and say, Lord, I don't have it going on. I can't. I'm weak. I'm broken. I'm a mess. I'm a failure. I don't deserve you. Anybody that comes to him with that kind of humble heart, that kind of humble spirit, he exalts. He lifts up. Those who are the ones who are knocked down, those, the ones who are knocked down, the ones who are rejected, are those who have proud hearts who are rich in their own eyes, who come to God and say, well, look at what I do for you, God. Look at all the money I've given to you and to your mission and your ministry. Look at all of the great things I can do for you. His mighty arm has brought down anyone who comes with a proud heart thinking that we have something that we offer. But for those who come to him as a servant, humble and simply say, Lord, I'm not worthy. For those, he's lifted up. Her words here, as I read through this text, sounded very similar to me to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. Hear her words again there. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly, satisfied the hungry, satisfied the hungry with good things, sent away the, sent the rich away empty. He's helped the servant, his servant Israel, remembering his mercy. Jesus said when he began his ministry, in fact, one of the first public sermons after he'd begun his ministry, he began it with these words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of God is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst 
for righteousness. They shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. It's almost as though Jesus was echoing the words or Mary was foreshadowing the proclamation of Jesus who she was carrying in her womb. You know who God is going to smile upon? The ones that God is going to exalt, the one who is God, that God is going to give a place in his kingdom. Those who come to him with a humble heart, with a broken spirit, those who think that they have nothing to offer and come to God and say, I need you. Those are the ones are going to receive an incredible gift from God. What is that gift? That gift is probably best identified right here in the middle of this text in verse 50. His mercy. His mercy. From generation to generation on those who fear him. On those who come to God and honor him and exalt him and humble themselves before him. Not coming with a proudful heart. Not coming think that they're thinking that they're rich in and of themselves and their own spirit and all that they can bring to God. But those who are willing to come to God with a sense of trepidation, a sense of fear, a sense of honor, saying, Lord, I need you. Those people will receive the mercy of God. What is God's mercy? If you don't already know, every single one of us has sinned against God. Even Mary had sinned. Every one of us. God chose her and called her blessed because she was a very special person. Don't get me wrong. The angel pointed that out, that she was special, that she was a special woman among her generation, that God called her out. She wasn't special because she was perfect. She was special because God chose her. (laughs) All right. You and I, our hope is not in our perfection. In fact, if we come to God thinking that we have it together and we have something to offer him and God, here I am and I'm a good person. I'm a good husband. I'm a good dad. I've done all that I can to to, to take care of the poor. I've done all of these good things. Lord, aren't you glad that I'm on your side? If that's how we come to God, the scripture says that we're going to be rejected by God. Even, Matthew says, later on in that same sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, he said, there's going to be a lot of people in the final days who come to me and they say, we preached in your name and we cast out demons in your name and we did miracles in your name. And Jesus said, I'm going to have to look at them and say, depart from me because I never knew you. Trying to be good for God isn't enough. Our only hope is to recognize the fact that before a holy God, we are helpless. We understand that that we're dirty, that we've sinned. You, You might take the Ten Commandments and try to walk down that list and say, well, I haven't done that. I haven't done that one, and I haven't done that one. But how many people in here can honestly say that they've never bore false witness? 
hopefully most of you could say that you've never murdered or that you've never uh, committed adultery on your spouse. But Jesus deals with that in the New Testament when he says, look, if, if, if you have lusted after a woman, he's talking to men at that point, if you've lusted after women, you've already committed adultery in your heart. If you've hated your brother, you've already committed the sin of murder in your heart. And whether you've physically committed that act, which there's probably nobody in here that's perfect anyway, if you just take the Ten Commandments. Probably none of us could pass that we've never told a lie even to our parents. We never stole anything. We never took anything that wasn't ours. The bottom line is every single one of us is guilty before a holy God. And as Mary said, he is holy, completely without sin, absolutely perfect, separated from us, perfect. And, and he dwells in a place that is holy. And because he is holy and, and his, his residence is holy, he cannot allow those who are unholy into his presence unless their sin is dealt with unless their sin is cleansed and purified, unless they are redeemed. And in Christ, we see the mercy of God. He looks on our circumstance and he forgives our sin when it is paid for by the blood of his son. When we, are, when we trust his gift of Christ as our Savior, he extends his gift of mercy. And some of you are itching for me to go to the next step. The reason I haven't is because it's not right here in this text, but his mercy goes beyond that because it, he extends it to grace. Mercy is where he forgives us. He gives us something, or he forgives us of what we've done. Grace is when he gives us a gift that we don't deserve. He goes beyond that, and he offers an inheritance of eternal life, an inheritance of, of a glorious future. He, he offers us an incredible gift, but it begins with his mercy. He first has to let our sins go and have mercy on us. And in Christ, we find God's mercy extended from generation to generation on all those who would fear him. Mary sings about it while she's still pregnant. She understood that God had chosen her to be a conduit to bring the Savior into this world who was going to have an impact on every generation. That impact reached back to Abraham Isaac, and all of those who had, who had walked by faith in God before, from, from the fall forward, the impact of the one that she was carrying in her womb reached all the way back to the beginning of, of human creation, God's creation of the human being, and reached all the way forward to every generation going forward, that the Christ child, the Messiah whom she carried in her womb, was from generation to generation brought an opportunity for us to experience the mercy of God. It was very personal for her, but it went far beyond her. And I think that that's, that's 
one of the things that I would encourage you with today, first, celebrate, rejoice, praise God today because of your personal experience, your personal hope, your personal salvation. Because see, if, if I don't get a, get a grip and I don't fully understand that Christ has saved me, I'm very unlikely to declare to the world that there's a Savior for all. So take a hold of it. Understand that, that this Christ who we celebrate his birth this time of year was born for me. He's my Savior. He's my God. Yes, he's holy, but he looks upon me with mercy. He loves me. He cared for me. As, as Mary, with a humble heart, recognizes that she's nothing more than a servant to this holy, awesome, mighty God, rejoices and praises and magnifies his name because of what he has done for her. Folks, let's begin there. Take, take some moments during the season to reflect on the fact that Christ was born for you. That he came to save you. That you would have no hope of eternal life outside of God's incarnation and his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He came for me. But don't stop there. The Christ who died for you died for the generations. He died for your children and for your grandchildren. And you have something that you need to tell them. You have a message that you need to proclaim. You have something that you need to sing about. I get told every once in a while I ought to talk about it and I'll sing about it. That's why I'm a preacher. You don't see me at the piano. But we ought to shout from the mountaintops. We ought to, we ought to tell it in the stores. At our family gatherings, we ought to remind people that we're here because Jesus came and he died and he rose. He's the, he's the reason, he's the answer, he's our hope. We can have joy in the most difficult of circumstances because of Christ. Don't miss that. Mary's not on the mountaintop at this point when she's singing this song. She's pregnant, probably unmarried at this point still living with her cousin, getting the side eye from everybody in town, even her family. And even then, in the midst of the storm, in the midst of her, her struggles, she's proclaiming the truth of who Christ is, what God has done in her, and what he has planned for the nations. And then, she gets it here at the very end of verse 55. Let me read 54 as well. He has helped to serve in Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to his ancestors. God is a God who fulfills his promises. He made a promise to Abraham that, that through his lineage would come someone who would save the generations. That through his loins, through his family line, he was going to do something very special. And God, thousands of years later, has kept his promises. 
He has done what he said he's going to do. So Mary rejoices and exalts the name of God because he is a God who keeps his promises and she's getting to experience it. She knows that the prophecies have been fulfilled already and some she's about to see fulfilled right in her lifetime. God keeps his promises, Mary says. Church, don't forget that. Jesus made some promises to us. He told us, first of all, that those who believe in him, those who believe and believe in him would never die. That means that if he hasn't come back yet and I take my last breath on this earth, I'm not dead. I step out of the, this body and I'm take my spirit as received into his arms. He keeps those promises. He also promised that he's coming back. That there's a day that we can look forward to when he's going to settle all of his accounts when Jesus is going to return with a trumpet, Paul writes, and a voice of an archangel, and he will return in power and glory. And, and he will set, a, set straight everything that's been crooked. He will right every wrong. You'll make clear his righteousness. As Amos says, some people look forward to the coming of the day of the Lord that ought not look forward to it. Because some who look forward to that coming of the Lord are going to find out that they, they're like a guy who is being chased by a lion and he turns to be chased by a bear and he leans up against the wall and he gets bit by a snake. Some who look forward to the return of Christ are going to find in that day that they are woefully lacking because of their proud hearts thinking that they measured up, they weren't, that they were going to be good enough. It's only those who, as Mary says, come with a humble heart that God's going to exalt and lift up. Those who fear him, those who honor him. What an incredible song of worship from a young girl carrying within her the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You may find yourself right now in the midst of a crazy time. Things are wearing you. You're tired. Mary's song is, is a great encouragement, I hope, to you. Is no matter how bad things look in this world, God has an answer. God has a plan, and he's big enough. I, I think in a group this large, and certainly those that might see this later on on, on the, the Internet, or maybe you're watching from, from somewhere else today, there's more than likely someone here who thinks that, you know, if I died today, I'd probably be okay. But if I asked you that question, and I said, you know, if, if you were to take your last breath on this earth, and you stepped in the presence of God, and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? Your answer may be something like this. Well, I've tried really hard. I've been a good person. I've gone to church. I've done some good things for you. I've given gifts for children who were in poverty. If that's your answer or any variation of your answer, that's not enough. 
because we cannot do enough good things on our own, in our own strength, to measure up to God. The bottom line is there's only one right answer. If God were to look me in the eye today, I was to stand before the throne and he says, why shall I let you into my heaven? All I can Because of Jesus, because of Christ, he's my only hope. I don't deserve to be here. I'm a sinner. My only hope is your mercy and your grace. Mary, she knew that she was a virgin, but she also knew that she wasn't perfect. And that the God whom she carried in her womb was holy. What an incredible thought that had to be to her. She was grateful that God chose the humble to pour out his mercy. That's what it boils down to. We have to be humble enough to recognize that we're not good enough, that we can't get there in our own strength and put our faith and trust in the gift that God's offered us through his son, who was born a little over 2,000 years ago to a virgin in Bethlehem. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Wataga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Wataga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwataga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.